Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, Jewish Americans who oppose U.S. support for Israel's genocidal war on Gaza filling New York's Grand Central Terminal was a big deal, but not enough to make the front page of the local paper, the New York Times. U.S. journalists invoke the First Amendment a lot, but not so much when it extends to regular folks using their individual voices at sometimes significant personal risk to say no to something the U.S. government is doing in their name. Some listeners may remember marching with thousands of others in advance of the U.S. war on Iraq, only to come home and find the paper or TV station ignored them utterly, or distorted their effort and their message, as when NBC's Tom Brokaw reported a Washington, D.C. anti-war march of at least 100,000 people met with a couple hundred pro-war counter-protesters as, quote, Opponents and supporters of the war marched in cities across the nation on Saturday, close quote. Protest is the voice of the people, our guest's organization states. Defending rights and dissent aims to invigorate the Bill of Rights and, crucially, to protect our right to political expression. We'll talk with Chip Gibbons. He's policy director at Defending Rights and Dissent today on Counterspin. That's coming up, but first, a quick look back at some recent press. The latter half of 2023 brought us the first GOP debates of the 2024 election cycle. From August to December, the Republican candidates, save for frontrunner former President Donald Trump, who has refused to participate, faced off in four debates sponsored by the Republican National Committee. Fair's Keating Zelenki and Julie Holler researched the questions posed by debate moderators. You can find the full report on fair.org. The most frequent foreign policy topic had nothing to do with either ongoing military campaigns in Ukraine or Gaza. Instead, the spotlight fell on China. Nearly all of the questions framing China as a threat, either militarily or economically. Ten questions had to do with candidates' plans to ward off a hypothetical invasion of Taiwan. Others ranged from potential Chinese interference on TikTok to Chinese economic and political competition and even Chinese chemicals in fentanyl. Abortion questions were overwhelmingly framed in terms of the issue's impact on Republicans. It's a losing issue, and candidates were asked who could find a winning path forward. Many questions and their lead-ins were strongly skewed to the right, as when SiriusXM's Megyn Kelly asked former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, who does not favor banning trans medical treatments for minors, quote, Kids who go from puberty blockers to cross-sex hormones are at a much greater likelihood of winding up sterile. How is it that you think a parent should be able to okay these surgeries, never mind the sterilization of a child? And aren't you way too out of step on this issue to be the Republican nominee? Close quote. Fox's Brett Baer and Martha McCallum larded a question to former Vice President Mike Pence with misleading right-wing talking points, asking whether murders in Los Angeles, New York, and Chicago were happening around this country as a result of COVID lockdowns. 
There is no research to back that correlation, if you wondered. Across all four debates, a single question was asked about climate change, not by a journalist moderator, but a guest questioner who asked how the GOP would address the crisis. Rather than asking candidates to answer, Fox's McCallum reframed it. Quote, so we want to start on this with a show of hands. Do you believe human behavior is causing climate change? Raise your hand if you do. Close quote. Vivek Ramaswamy interrupted this all to announce, quote, I'm the only person on the stage who isn't bought and paid for, so I can say this, the climate change agenda is a hoax, close quote. He added that more people are dying of bad climate change policies than they are of actual climate change. Rather than follow up on those wacky claims, Fox's bear just asked Nikki Haley and Tim Scott whether they were bought and paid for, and then went to a commercial break, bringing the conversation about this existential planetary crisis to an abrupt end. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. The last several years have provided ample reason for public protest, and many people have been doing just that, including some who never had before. This country has a much vaunted history of vocal public dissent, but we know that that is intertwined with a sadder history of efforts by the powerful to silence those voices. As we move into 2024 and reasons to speak up and out go unabated, What should we know about our rights to protest? What should concern us or give us hope? Chip Gibbons is a journalist, researcher, and activist, and policy director at Defending Rights and Dissent. He joins us now by phone. Welcome back to Counterspin, Chip Gibbons. Well, thank you for having me back. And I can think of no better way to start the new year than with Counterspin. Obviously, not a day goes by that I am not thankful for independent media, uh, but the last few months, I think, have stressed the importance of programs like yours, given the low-quality reporting coming out of the corporate media at a time when courageous journalism is most needed. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much, and I, I absolutely concur. And I wanted to ask you about the landscape in general, but first, maybe a little um, kind of basic Education, uh, rightsanddissent.org. Folks can find a, a kind of guide on challenges to protest and also the importance of protest. Because sometimes you do still hear people say that people marching or boycotting should just use proper channels, that society has mechanisms to resolve every conflict within the rules uh, that protest seems to break. Can you talk about the rights that we do have to public protest and why those rights are so important? Sure. So at Defending Rights and Dissent, we like to say that we defend your right to know and your freedom to act. We oppose government secrecy and the government attempts to hide its own crimes. And we also defend the rights of the people to take to the streets, to call their members of Congress, to engage in dissent. Dissent is vital to our democracy. And I I believe I've commented on the past, you know, protest is the tool by which we realize our democracy, that we realize 
the democratic ambitions of our country, right? The right to protest is both a fundamental right and it is a core tool for achieving other fundamental rights. Without the right to protest, we wouldn't have made as much progress as we have on civil rights. And I I know there's a lot more progress to be made. We wouldn't have made as much progress on women's rights, on LGBTQ rights, on peace and disarmament, although that cause feels very far from being realized these days. But what progress we have made has been through sort of grassroots from the bottom social movement, not from benevolent elites being like, well, let's grant the people their rights today. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting that the view towards protest, not just among the public, but also in news media, where once a protest is 10 or 20 years in the past, it can become acceptable. But the protests that are going on today are somehow categorically different, and we should be challenging them. And of course, it matters very much who's doing the protesting and why. The the civil rights movement is the quintessential example of that. I mean, you look at the media coverage of Martin Luther King and his protest during his lifetime. I mean, they accuse him of inciting violence, rioting, all the things they say about protesters today. You heard the same claims about why are you disrupting things? Why are you alienating people? And at the end of his life, he was an extremely unpopular person, Mm -hmm. including with many black Americans. He did not have high approval ratings. And now we have a Martin Luther King holiday. Rightfully so. We have a Martin Luther King memorial. People who are trying to shut down protests or advance racism cite him, as, as, as well as people who are doing the opposite, right? He has sort of entered the sort of lexicon of, of great historical figures that everybody, no matter how comical what they're doing is, cites. So I think that's a really great example. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, look at, look at the Iraq war. I mean, I, John Pilger died recently, and I was watching some of the interviews he did with, with journalists and the run-up to the war on the way they're attacking him. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, 20 years from now, they would like to later, they'd like to pretend that they were doing what he was doing. Right. So it all is perspective. Yeah. Well, let's talk about and we've sort of transitioned, I guess, into the challenges, because anyone who has been on a march calling for a ceasefire and end of occupation in Gaza, calling for voting rights, um, you know, um, women's rights, LBGTQ, people have been in the street just, just in this past year quite a lot, it's often very transformative and it makes you feel good and you see your community. But there also can be an element of fear involved when you see just lines and lines of police, armed police that are kind of girding you in or when you're being kind of shoved around by law enforcement and you can stand there but you can't stand here. Protest is not without some elements of fear and of difficulty. And we see that there are legislators who like it that way. Um, And that's part of where the fight is, too. It's not just in the street, but it's also in the courtrooms and the capitals, as you say. Absolutely. And I do want to comment that I do believe in the transformative power of protest. I remember the first protest I ever went to in 2005 uh, against the Iraq war and just showing up at the new Carrollton metro station (laughs) on a Saturday and having to park in the overflow lot and wait in this long line of people with anti-war signs that you remember, if you were opposed to the Iraq war, they made you feel demonized and isolated. Right. And to see 300 to 600,000 people 
who believed the same thing I believed about the war was really, really powerful and really inspiring. And I also think that politicians, when they see, they'll never admit this, when they see tens or hundreds of thousands of people taking the streets, it scares them. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at the look at U.S. support for Israel. For decades, it's been entirely unchallenged. Yeah. Everyone goes along with it, or they get, you know, kicked out of public life. And now you have, and you've had protests before. I've been to many protests against massacres in Gaza over the last 15 years. But you have these huge protests, very useful in many cases, very vibrant, very disruptive. And I think it's very challenging to people who have been in Washington for 30 or 40 years and every year rubber stamp the uh, sending of aid to Israel. And I think... You know, it's hard to talk about the future of dissent in this country this year without talking about what's happening in Gaza, mm-hmm. because that looms over everything. And we're seeing a real outburst of protest around the ceasefire, around the occupation, around around apartheid. And we're also seeing a real heavy-handed attempt to demonize and repress these movements. There's always been what's called a, a Palestine exception to free speech Palestine supporters have been censored, jailed, spied on for for, for decades. Um, So this isn't entirely new. The level of public vitriol, where you have Congress passing resolutions condemning student groups, Congress passing resolutions that condemn university presidents, Congress calling on the FBI to investigate media outlets based on these sorts of, this isn't a resolution, these are just letters from individual members of Congress, Mm -hmm. to investigate media outlets for these sorts of conspiracy theories that they had freelancers who were involved, and mainstream ones, like like New York Times, we're not talking about like small left-wing publications, these conspiracy theories that they were somehow involved in October the 7th. It's a really dark time. And I know a lot of people I talk to feel very strongly that the repression will backfire because the movement is so strong and people are so disgusted by what our government is complicit in. And I think that's potentially true. But I do have to caution, before World War I, the left was very powerful in this country. The Socialist Party had members of Congress. They had mayors. And the repression of that war completely decimated them. Uh, In the run-up to the Cold War, the FBI has all these internal files about how powerful they think the Communist Party is, that people are taking them seriously, that liberals work with them, that the 1930s were a pink decade or a red decade, and the FBI's security apparatus is going to be like penicillin to the spread of, of the pink decade. So a lot of the periods of repression have followed the left when it was at its strongest, not when it was at its weakest. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm not saying we're going to be decimated like we were during World War I or, or during McCarthyism, but I do think we should be cautious that repression does have an impact and it does follow popular movement successes. And I do think Part of the reason why we see this unhinged level of repression around the Gaza war, if you want to call it a war, it's more of a genocide, is because the the atrocities that are being committed are so horrifying that even if you're someone who doesn't think Israel is an apartheid state, even if you're a centrist, it's hard to watch 
and hear about hospitals being targeted, hear about refugee camps being blown up and not be like morally repulsed by what you're seeing. And I do think that people know that. And that's why they're sort of escalating the ratcheting up of oppression around the ceasefire protest. Because there's, there's no defense of bombing a refugee camp. There's no defense of having snipers outside a Catholic church and shooting church women who are going to use the restroom. Like, there's not really a strong defense of this. You can either deny it or try to shut everyone up. Right. And I think you're right to point out that, well, we'll all get through it because everyone's feeling feeling so strongly about it. We do have to count up the losses, you know, and not everything is legislation. You know, we had these business leaders saying, I want a list of all of the student activists so that I can make sure that no one ever hires them. You know, these are follow on impacts that will absolutely affect some people's lives. And I just think that I agree that that's important to keep in mind and to be mindful of. I'm going to switch you just a little bit because I know it is something that you want to talk about. One of the tools of political imprisonment and silencing is forgetfulness, out of sight, out of mind. We have a deep problem in this country of once someone is behind bars in one way or another, we don't hear from them. Just materially, it's difficult to get access to people. And then also there is kind of an acceptance that they must be guilty of something if they're in prison or even if it is a political imprisonment. And of course, I'm talking about Julian Assange. And I know that many people think, oh, he's not the only political prisoner. There's a lot of other things going on. But there's a reason that the Assange case is so important for people who are journalists or people who care about journalism, as well as people who care about the public's right to know. It's not just any old case. So let me ask you for a little update, because it seems like, oddly, things seem to be shifting, at least in terms of congressional support, maybe, for Assange's case. What's going on right now with him? So last year, we saw the first congressional letter calling for the charges to be dropped against Julian Assange. It was led by Rashida Tlaib and the entire expanded squad signed on to it. It went to Merrick Garland. It was the first of its kind. Later that year, a number of Australian parliamentarians visited the U.S., a real interesting cross-section of the Australian political system who had very different reasons for supporting freeing Assange, everything from they felt like he was a political prisoner to, you know, we work with the U.S. national security state and our people are really angry about Assange and you're going to make it impossible for us to continue to help you. Mm-hmm. Like full range of, of, of opinions. And that spawned a second letter, a bipartisan letter, a bicameral letter with both Republicans and Democrats on it, led by Thomas Macy and Jim McGovern. And that letter went to Biden. And there were both Republicans, Democrats on that one. All of the signatories of the original letter were on it. And you had a senator, Rand Paul, on it. And it's really an interesting coalition because there are libertarians, who I respect, who have been very good on this issue. There are progressives who should be good on this issue and are getting better. And then there's some of the MAGA people who... Uh, I don't terribly care for even a little bit, but but they're they're on the letters too. So it's a strange 
bedfellows moment, mm-hmm. but it is really been pushed by the fact that you have every single civil liberties and press freedom group and major newspaper being like, this is an existential threat to the future of press freedom. And you have to keep going to these offices and telling them, you know, you, Mr. Progressive, you care so much about press freedom, you you hate the threat to democracy that Donald Trump was. Here's what the New York Times and Reporters Without Borders say about what we're doing to join Assange. How can you have any credibility on those other issues when you ignore, when you ignore this horrifying assault on the First Amendment. And again, it is an existential issue to to press freedom, and it's particularly troubling right now because, remember, Assange is on trial or going to be on trial for exposing U.S. war crimes in Iraq and Afghanistan. Look at the war crimes that are taking place in Gaza. And, of course, Assange was the last one they went for, the journalist, the publisher, and that was crossing a Rubicon. But they went after the whistleblowers and the sources first. They went after Chelsea Manning. Daniel Hale, the drone whistleblower, is still in prison. So I would say this has even greater urgency because you have people in the government right now who are dissenting about the Gaza war. You have people in the press who I think want to challenge some of these narratives. And then you have at the same time government whistleblower in prison for exposing lies about the U.S. drone programs and a publisher who's trying to extradite for exposing lies to the Iraq and Afghanistan war. We've always talked about the chilling effect these types of policies have, these types of persecutions have. I'm not going to call them prosecutions. They're they're persecutions. Mm -hmm. And in a moment where we have an outbreak of dissent within the public, within the government, about this horrible war our government is part of, similar to what happened with Dan Ellsberg around Vietnam, similar to what happened to the war on terror and people like Snowden and John Kiriakou and Dan Ellsberg and Thomas Drake. And we are going to London, the U.S. is, in February to have Julian Assange's final appeal to try to bring him here. And Daniel Hale is still being held in the communications management unit. What message does it send? to the whistleblowers of today. And if WikiLeaks hadn't been so repressed, what role would they be playing right now in this Gaza war? Well, let me just ask you, finally, I'm reading through the stuff on Assange. Of course, the Espionage Act comes up a lot. Are there changes, policy changes or legal changes that could prevent future cases like we saw? Absolutely. And we've worked with a number of offices over the years, including Tulsi Gabbard, Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, and Cori Bush, for a range of offices, I know, around what we think is the best proposal to reforming the Espionage Act. It was supported by the late Dan Ellsberg, who we we lost and... Much missed. You know, I, I miss his counsel on this issue mm-hmm. um, that would sort of raise the burden for what the government has to prove to get an espionage act conviction, as well as make sure the jury can hear about why the whistleblower or journalist did what they did, as well as allow a public interest defense, as well as limit the espionage act to people with a duty to protect classified information. So as the espionage act is written, if I read in the Washington Post that There's classified documents that indicate Ukraine was involved 
in the Nord Stream pipeline bombing. And I say, hey, Janine, did you see that that Washington Post article? Right. I've technically broken the letter of the Espionage Act. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it would never be applied that way. But limiting it so it does not apply to journalists, publishers, members of the general public. And in those cases where it can be applied, it can only be applied to those who are engaged in harming the U.S. deliberately, not whistleblowing. And I don't want to be counting my chickens before they hatch, but I do think it's very likely we will see, especially with Dan's passing and people wanting to commemorate that, we will see something put forward in the Congress this year that is similar to what has been proposed by Tlaib and Omar and Bush as amendments to the National Defense Authorization Act. Probably shouldn't have said that, but... well. I guess I did. It's out there now. Well, and then I said finally, but finally, finally, what about just fortifying the right to protest generally? We have seen, we're seeing um, the efforts to criminalize protest of various sorts, from boycotting to marching in particular places. There are efforts, though, to shore up that fundamental right as well. I mean, we can do it, I think, by protesting, first of all. But are there efforts going on to support us in that fundamental right to speak up? It's really difficult because so many of the efforts are reactionary Mm -hmm. uh, and that people put forward bad proposals and we we fight them. For years, Defending Rights to Consent has tried to put forward proactive Mm-hmm. You know, legislation enshrining the right to protest. But but that gets kind of complicated because we don't want this to be the limit. Right. You know, we, we uh, you don't want to inadvertently give the police, like, whoa, this wasn't in the bill. We can do this. And also people are more motivated to defend a right that's being lost than to affirmatively protect it. I understand. So, But we have proposals at Rights and Dissent that you could pass in your local community that would help to affirm the right to protest. It's just everyone is so focused on the defense, including us, that it's, it's, it's difficult to be proactive. But if anyone is interested in that, get on the rightsindissent.org website and contact us. Absolutely. And it's at least a conversation. You know, part of the freedom just comes from the ability to talk about it and to talk about what we want to do and what we should be able to do and how we support one another in the various protests and dissenting actions that we're taking, that we stay in communication with one another. Absolutely. All right. Any final thoughts, Chip Gibbons, as we go forward uh, bravely as we can muster into 2024, asserting our right to protest and to dissent? Don't be silent. Don't let them intimidate you. Don't be silenced. The First Amendment gives you the right to speak and act for your conscience. It gives you the right to come together with other Americans to collectively work to change the world and make this a country that reflects our values. And we should never voluntarily surrender those rights. All right, then. We've been speaking with Chip Gibbons, Policy Director at Defending Rights and Dissent. They're online at rightsanddissent.org. Chip Gibbons, thank you, as always, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you for having me. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. The show is engineered by Riley Baer. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.